Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Central. If you're a guest of ours, my name is uh, Craig, and it's my privilege just to begin a new series with you today entitled Messy Church that will run throughout the month of August, so over the next, uh, over the next few weeks. If you have a Bible, you may want to open it to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and it would be uh, no understatement, I believe, to say that this is probably one of the most important messages in this upcoming season of ministry at Central. And honestly, for, for many people, it will probably be one of the most important messages for you to base your life upon. I really believe that one of the motivators behind reading the scriptures, especially the life of Jesus, is that Jesus' life sets the example that in so many respects, God calls us to live out today. So what I'm gonna do today is really go through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke from beginning through to the end of it, and I pray that you will catch a glimpse of the significance of the life of Jesus for us today, both for Central, just as we prepare to start a ministry entitled Celebrate Recovery, where we will intentionally make room for people to experience the hope and the life of Jesus through helping them overcome their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, those things that they've been living with for a long time. And the other part of that is, I believe that that is significant for us because quite honestly, if you want to know my heart for the church, if our gatherings in here, this is the message to, to really discern that. So this message is really important for me and I'm going to take you through the gospel of Luke today and I pray that you will see the story of Jesus in a way that you've never seen it before. Now, to help us do that, we've actually commissioned an artist to actually draw this message for you. Now, you may well have seen this before, where somebody will be up here, they'll be teaching, and then there will be an artist just off to the side on a canvas. Well, today, the screen is the canvas. So as I go through this message, as I journey with you through the book of Luke, from the opening chapters through until the end, the artist will actually try and capture the scene. And my prayer is, for those of you that are visual learners, that you will see it today. And not just see it, but you will perceive it. My prayer for those of you who are here today is that you will not just hear this message, but you will understand it. The Bible says that there is a difference between hearing and understanding, between seeing and perceiving. And I really believe that if the church is going to do what God envisioned the church to do, we need to see and perceive, to hear and understand the way that Luke wrote the story of Jesus. I believe that one of the reasons why the church is so uh, kind of impotent in the world today is because we have not lived out the vision that Jesus has for the church. Jesus envisaged what we're calling a messy church. And if we are going to live out the story of Jesus, then we need to be very comfortable with the church that's messy. We'll always be Dutch clean, right? That's what we are. But there is an aspect to Jesus' vision for the church where he invites us into this idea of embracing a messy church. I want to begin today by talking about the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty stands at the entry to the harbor of New York. In years past, it was the first man-made object that new immigrants clearly saw as they entered into the United States. That was a landmark, a symbol of what this country promised, a future of acceptance, of hope, and of prosperity. No matter who you were, where you come from, or what you've left behind, here was a place for you. On that statue there is an inscription, and part of that inscription reads, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to break free, the wretched refuse of your shore. Send these, the homeless, 
the tempest tossed to me, and I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What incredible words. No, this is not a political campaign for a party in blue. This is a value upon which this nation was founded. And what I want you to note, first of all, is a symbol, the statue. It's a symbol of hope, of acceptance, and of a future. And then you have the reality of a nation that was supposed to epitomize that symbol. Why is it so many of us, when we discover the, that kind of sonnet on the statue, are so moved by it? I believe it's because one of the deepest needs that any human being has is the need to be accepted. It's the need to belong. No matter who you are, where you've come from, what you left behind, you're welcome here. The Statue of Liberty is a symbol of that value. I start there because the way that Luke writes his gospel is to use the cross, the symbol that the Christian is very familiar with, as a symbol that no matter who you are, what you've done, what you've brought in here with you, what you're living with constantly, this cross is a symbol of acceptance, of hope, and of life. Luke intentionally writes his story that way, to draw in the idea that the cross is a symbol of life to the exiled. And not only that, Luke goes further than that. In the way he writes the story of Jesus dying on the cross, not only does he show and demonstrate Jesus' love for those who are so far from God, he goes a step further. He actually portrays this story in such a way as to say that not only is there a God who accepts you, there is also a church that welcomes you. There is a place for you to call home. There is a place for you to belong. So just as we have in the foundation of this nation or over the last 100 years, the, the idea of a statue symbolizing what this nation is and was supposed to be, and the calling into a particular place, so in the same way we have a symbol in our Christian faith, the cross, that through the actions of Jesus upon it, not only is hope and life available to all people, but there is a place that every person can call home, and that place is the church. And what we're going to discover as we go through this message today is that Jesus was so passionate about his vision for the church that he was willing to die for it. What we're going to discover is that the religious community of his day were so passionate in keeping with their regulations and their routines that they would be willing to kill Jesus for it. What we're going to discover is that all too often the religious community experience and express life in the holy places not through the value of welcoming people and accepting people, and encouraging them to experience the hope and life of Jesus. No, what religious people do is they double down on the hatches, they close the doors, and they view the life in the holy place as a safe place from the hostile world outside. And what we're going to discover today is that the religious leaders were willing to die on that hill, and that Jesus Christ was also willing to die on that hill, literally. Because he believed that lost, hurting, broken people, people experiencing all the words that you're seeing on this screen and so much more, are so valuable to God that he was willing to die to make it possible for them to find a place to belong, firstly to God himself, and secondly in a family with whom they could experience that life and that increasing freedom. This is the way that Luke has wrote his gospel. That's why commentators call him the gospel for the outcast, 
They say that Luke is the gospel of the underdog. It's because the way he's written his story just shows that people who are hurting, helpless, harassed, have a place to call home. And that place is supposed to be right here. Now what I want to do is I want to journey through Luke with you. And we're going to begin pretty much right at the beginning. And in the beginning of Luke, in Luke chapters one and two especially, we experience that the activity starts in the holy places, in the temple. If we were to take our gospel of Luke and then we would flip over to the end of the gospel, so from Luke chapter 20 and following, we would also experience that the story continues in the holy places. And so what we have then in the story of Luke is a story of Jesus that begins in the holy place, the temple, and ends in the holy place, the temple. Eugene Peterson, the guy who interpreted the message or wrote the message kind of uh, paraphrase of the Bible, wrote an incredible book called Tell It Slant. Tell It Slant. And Peterson said it's no accident that Luke has written his story of Jesus beginning in the holy place and ending in the holy place because Luke has as his goal the idea that the life of Jesus is supposed to be lived out through the followers of Jesus today. So just like the Jesus story starts in the holy place and ends in a holy place, so too the life of the Christ follower today starts in the holy place and ends in the holy place. It starts in the holy place with worship, just like we're all doing right now. This is where it begins. And then it ends, our week ends in the holy place when next week we will come back here again, draw the close to one week, thank God for it, and then begin another one. What's interesting in the way that Luke has written his story about life starting in the holy place, you see it there on the screen just beginning, and ending in the holy place, is that in the holy places, in Luke's gospel, the language is religious language. People talk in these holy places in the, in the temple, even in the synagogues as we move through the gospel, using words the people outside of the holy places never use. It's also very much like us here. We sang a song where we thank God for the cross and the blood of Jesus that actually covered all of our sin. If you've never been to church, your first time back for a while, that kind of goes straight over your head, doesn't it? Well, you mean that this guy died on a cross and his blood actually covers my sin and that actually makes it possible for God to forgive me? There are concepts, there are ideas that are spoken of in the holy place. Words like regeneration, sanctification, eschatology, and we can just keep going. That those people on the outside, they just don't know. But the point here is life on the inside in the holy places actually has a language all of its own. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you actually see that in the holy places, language is used in the holy places that isn't used outside. So when Jesus goes into the holy places, he uses religious language. But then when he leaves the holy places and he lives life through the week, he switches to what Eugene Peterson calls the vernacular, the ordinary everyday language. Gone are words like sanctification and justification and all these kind of religious words. Now he starts talking about sheep and gates and doors and lights and lamps and hills. He switches into a language that those people on the outside can actually understand. And again, Peterson says this is intentional for Luke because he wants us to recognize that inside in the holy places, yeah, we switch into a language that is kind of a a language all of its own. 
But we need to realize how important it is outside of the holy places to live lives in between that actually enables us and affords us to switch into the vernacular, switch into the ordinary as we do life with people who've never been in here and quite honestly think the only time they will come in here is in a coffin. Luke is intentional in the way he writes his gospel. He is intentional because life starts in the holy place. It ends in the holy place. But what we're going to see today is that it is actually the life in between that truly matters. So we see then that the gospel story in Luke starts in those holy places. And then it kind of spills out into the synagogue. And if we can understand the significance of Jesus' vision for the church, what I need to do, firstly, is to help you understand that while much focus today is on the temple that you see being drawn for you right now, the reality is that there was also life in the synagogue. The Jew would worship in the temple and would have community in the synagogue. Look at this. To understand what's going on in the story, we need to understand that worship was the prerogative of the temple and instruction and community was the prerogative of the synagogue. Jesus had deep respect for the holy places, but what happens in the synagogue reveals both his passion for hurting people and his vision for the church. So what we have then is life being lived out in the holy places, in the temple, in the beginning and at the end. But if we want to catch a glimpse of what Jesus figured the church should be for, we need to look at what's happening in the synagogue in between this first temple visit, leading up to the end, because it's in the synagogue activity that we discover the vision that Jesus has for the church. I say this because there is a guy by the name of Mitchell who in the year 1900 wrote this. The Jewish synagogue was both the precursor and the prototype of the Christian church. And commentators since then have discovered when they've looked at Luke's gospel that Luke is doing something with these holy places. He is, a, he is actually writing a story about what the church should be for. He is actually having Jesus in these holy places, challenging the regulations and the, and the practices in the holy places because he is unleashing a new vision that God has for life in the holy place. And so what we have in the stories in the holy places is actually pointing away for the other side of the cross, life in the church. So what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to draw your attention to this distinction between the, the temple and its prerogative for worship and the synagogue and its prerogative for community and for teaching, instruction, discipleship. And I want you to note that Jews had learned to worship pretty much anywhere. See, while it would have been a motivation for any God-fearing Jew to attend the, the temple feasts whenever they could, it would have been kind of a prerogative for a faithful Jew to actually attend the synagogue three times a week, on the Sabbath, on a Monday, and on a Thursday. Life happened in the synagogue. Jews had discovered something I believe the church in America needs to discover. Worship is possible anywhere. See, the synagogue started and developed, commentator said, out of the exile. When the, the Jewish people were exiled, northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Syria and Babylon, they discovered that they could worship anywhere because access to the temple was no longer there. They discovered that they could worship in hard places, even in places where people spoke a foreign language. One of the blessings for me about being a pastor of an international church in Hamburg was witnessing what God did in the lives of people who were used to being able to worship anywhere at any time. America truly is the country of choice. Even in this small town, you have, what is it, over 170 choices about where you worship? 
If you don't like it here, guess what? You can go worship somewhere else. And if they don't like it somewhere else, they can come and worship here, the land of choice. Jews discovered something important. It's possible to worship God anywhere. And so the significance of the temple, in a sense, was actually being uh, mitigated for the priority of the synagogue. And in fact, Pharisaism, the Pharisaic movement, actually grew out of the significance of the synagogue, out of discipleship, out of community. This tells us that if the most important aspect of a believer's life is what happens here on a Sunday morning. We're missing the value of the church. You should be able to worship God anywhere. The value of the church is the community and the discipling relationships we enter into. And Jesus was challenging people with this. Stop focusing on special days and on special hours and start to live out your faith in a way that makes a a tangible difference in people's lives. And so his vision for the church can actually be seen by what happens, not in the special places that kind of straddle the week, but actually in the life in between the holy places on the weekend. And unfortunately, in the modern church, in the modern world, what we've done is put so many resources into Sundays that we've forgotten that what matters is the life in between. And it's in the life in between that we get a glimpse of what Jesus envisions for the church. And what we're going to discover is religious people don't like it. Now, I recognize I'm saying this. And this is going to be one of the most challenging messages that many of you have heard. But if it's true to the scriptures, I will not apologize for that. I believe that it's time for the church in America, where the church is becoming more irrelevant by the week, for us to get back to Jesus' vision for the church. And it's less about making Christians happy in their worship, and it's more about reflecting the life of God in, in between the holy place visits. So what happens in the synagogue here is a precursor for what happens in the church. And I want to show you this. So open your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is where the kind of story, the ministry of Jesus really begins. At the end of Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him, anoints him for his task as the Christ, Please notice that. There was never a time when Jesus was without the Holy Spirit, but there was a time when the Spirit of God came upon the Christ of God to anoint him for his task as the Messiah of God. That's what we see. And then we go into chapter four, and this same Spirit that has just anointed him for his task as the Christ leads him into the wilderness where he is tested and tempted by the devil for 40 days, therefore reliving Israel's history, and where Israel in Adam all sinned, here we have the second Adam successfully standing against temptation and therefore being presented as the true Christ of God. And so after that moment, we read in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Notice this please, because that kind of phrase is used throughout Luke frequently. And look at this, verse 15. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So far, so good. The pattern there would have been, a scripture would have been handed to them. That tells us that Jesus was a frequent visitor in the synagogue. And then someone would have been able to just share a brief commentary on what this text said. That's important for the next part because from verse 18, he's now in the Nazareth synagogue, his home synagogue. A scroll is presented to him from Isaiah. He unrolls it. He gets it to the point. He unrolls it to this point where he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. And the eyes of everyone was fastened on him. Why? Because now it is his turn to interpret the text. And look at what he says. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. One of the shortest messages there ever were that provoked such an outpouring of wrath. The messages back then would have been very short anyway. And all of you said, why can't we get back to that today, right? 
Everybody in this point, in the synagogue, is really annoyed with him. Because he basically says, the one of whom Isaiah has spoken is actually fulfilled in me and my person. Isaiah was talking about me. And I've come to do three things. I've come to heal, I've come to proclaim the good news of the gospel, and I've come to set free those who are imprisoned and trapped. And you can read the text from here. In Nazareth, they basically, you can see it here, they are driven, he is driven out, they cry, seize him, but miraculously, Jesus is able to walk through. Now have a look at what's going on in the rest of it. Verse 33, he goes out from there and he walks. See, he lives his life in between. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man, this is in Capernaum, he leaves Nazareth, he goes down to Capernaum, which is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and he, we read there that he goes into the synagogue, there was a man who was possessed by a demon, an impure spirit, he cried out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want with me? Jesus heals him. The people are amazed, but the religious community are distraught, but they don't say anything at this point in time. And there we read in verse 37 again, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. We read then that Jesus heals many people after that in verse 38, and there in verse 44, we read, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You're getting the pattern here, right? Jesus goes from one holy place, the synagogue, to another one. Already at the start, we see a conflict because they don't think that Jesus is who Jesus is. And Jesus now starts to do certain things so that the people following him is increasing. And now jump with me into Luke chapter six. Remember, we're talking about the kind of life that Jesus lived in between. Luke chapter six. Here we go. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching. And a man was there with, whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jump down to verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And so he looked at the man, he looked all around at them all, and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do with Jesus. Notice what's happened. Jesus has said, hey, this is why I've come. And he starts to do what he's come to do. And as he's going around from one synagogue in Nazareth to another one in Capernaum, 44 tells us he went around all the synagogues in Judea. These people are following him. Who are these people? They're this type of people. The people who've never darkened the door of a synagogue because they didn't feel welcome. The people who thought the only time they would get there was when they were dead. And all of a sudden, these people are so enamored by the life of Jesus that this crowd is starting to grow. And as it grows, they follow him into a place they never thought they'd ever see themselves going. And when they're in there, the problem is these people don't know how synagogue life functions. They, they don't know what to do. It, it, you know, they wouldn't know when to stand and when to sit. You ever been to a church like that? You sit when everybody stands and you stand when everybody sits? They've got these regulations. There's certain things that need to be done in a certain way at a certain point in time, and there's certain things that you do, and there are certain things that you don't do. What you don't do is work on the Sabbath, and work is healing people. So Jesus, look, you're completely wrong. You've got a crowd of people, but at the end of the day, you're working on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, wait a minute, your regulation for how life should be lived in here is way out of place, and I'm changing it. God is more interested in helping hurting broken people find life and healing than he is about what you think should happen in here. Got it? And they don't like it. So what do they do? They kick him out. So you know what Jesus does? He does what he does. He lives his life in between. So they're in chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Into the beginning of chapter 13, he's just doing what he does. And in fact, in some of these chapters, he now sends out the 12. Now he's getting other people involved in doing this, and, and, and his popularity is growing. And the 12 come back to him and they say, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. Do you know that when we say things and do things in your name, it actually happens? And then not to stop there, he actually sends out the 120. 
He, he gives this responsibility to live a life in between the holy places to so many more people. And, and then what happens is they, they get to Luke chapter 13. Move to me to, with me to Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, we read again that Jesus is going along. There are more and more people. And in Luke chapter 13, from verse 10, we read these words. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She'd been, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. You know, remember what Jesus came to do? Set the prisoner free. She was a prisoner to her infirmity. Woman, you are free. Then he put his hand on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God because that's what hurting people do when they experience the power of Jesus. But what do religious people do? Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And they drove him out again and Jesus left. You see what's going on here? Whenever Jesus enters the holy places, there are people with him who really need to experience the hope and life that Jesus offers. And Jesus actually gives them that life. And religious people don't like it because get bottom line, when you're in a holy place, when you're in a church, there are certain things we do and we do it our way, not your way. So Jesus, get with the game. This is the way this works. And Jesus says, no, I won't. Because the power of God is supposed to invade even the holy places. It's supposed to be a place where broken people can actually find help and healing. Now, church, you're kind of all with me on this, right? You'd all agree that this kind of behavior doesn't happen in the church today, right? We're not committed, more committed to our regulations for order and everything else than we are to helping people find health and healing, are we? Surely we've understood enough of this in the church today to recognize that the reason we exist is to live out the vision of Jesus in the holy places. And Jesus makes room and takes time to actually introduce people to the hope and life that he brings them in the name of his Father. I wish that were true. But sadly, in so many ministries that I've been a part of, Religious people have done what religious people do. When their world gets messed up by messy people, hurting people, broken people coming in, they complain. In one ministry, God started to do an incredible work. We saw so many people, young people coming to Christ. So many people that had never ever darkened the doors of a church started to come in. They didn't know how to speak. They didn't know how to behave. They didn't know why we stood when we stood, why we raised our hands when we did. And so they would lean over the one to the other and say, what on earth is going on? I don't get this. And then some of the established church people found themselves sitting next to people who bottom line just stank. And you know why? because this was a teenager who didn't have a home and he basically lived his life sleeping on one sofa to the next one. Sometimes I had to go two or three days without a shower. And so one by one, as the number of lost people started to come in because God was using a ministry that we were a part of in the schools, again, one by one, these older people would come to me. And it wasn't just older people, by the way, I shouldn't have said that, apologies. People came to me and they said, pastor, Kick them out. Move them out. Get rid of them. They're loud. They're obnoxious. They don't show the respect they should. They talk when you're talking. They talk when the music's going on. Can't you sort these people out? Does this sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever experienced that kind of thing? See, unfortunately, it is still true that when God starts to do a work through the life in between that we live as believers, all too often we bring these people with us 
into the holy places. And all too often, religious people are more concerned with the regulations and the order than they are with actually bending a little bit to introduce someone to the hope and life that Jesus offers. This is the way it was for Jesus. Luke chapter four, it starts. Luke chapter six, it goes on. Luke chapter 13, it goes on. And then from Luke 13, he, he moves from there and he, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Now he's going towards Jerusalem. He's still teaching in the synagogues as he goes and his popularity is growing by the minute. And these religious leaders are really getting frustrated. And so by the time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, there is a crowd of people on the Mount of Olives just enamored by him. There were people who were deaf that could hear. There were people who were blind that could see. There were people who were lame that could walk. There were people who were impure that had been cleansed. And as Jesus gets to Jerusalem up on the Mount of Olives, they, they lay their palm leaves on the floor and they start to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Glory to God in the highest. These people are blown away by Jesus. And then something happens. Jesus looks down at Jerusalem, he weeps. But he leads these people with him, doesn't he? Down the road from the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been there, you can just picture it. He leads them down from the mountain, looking at the temple. He leads them in through that east gate. He opens that east gate. All of these people are cheering. The east gate was so important because that was the gate through which the Messiah would enter the temple. It had been sealed until that moment. The people, these outsiders, these people who wouldn't be seen dead in a holy place until Jesus came, actually now are the ones that are actually leading him into the temple through that privileged door. And then Jesus sees something. He goes into the temple and he sees money changes. He sees it, it filled. And, and John chapter 2 tells us that he takes a cord, he takes a number of cords, and he weaves them together in a whip. That would have been something like this. It would have taken him probably 10, 15 minutes to do. And you know what he does, right? Because you know the story. What does he do? He drives them out of the temple, right? He just starts to do this. All too often, many of us have really struggled with this because we think that it is this spontaneous outpouring of anger when he should have been controlled. But the reality is it was perfectly controlled. He sat there. He stood there, all of these outsiders wanting to come in. And what have the religious people done? They've cluttered up the very place that was reserved in the temple for outsiders for all of their stuff. And so he gets these cords and he makes them together in a, in a whip like this and he drives them all out. Now I want you to see what's going on here. This is a picture of the Herodian temple. This is the part that would have been reserved for, for the Jews to worship. The money changers would have been here and they would have been here. This, these places, you know what they're called? The court of the Gentiles. The court reserved for the outsiders. The court reserved for those people who were so enamored by the life of God's people that they wanted to come in and see what was going on. And Jesus is so annoyed with them because he wants to make room for the people that God wanted to make room for. But yet again, religious people are really good at this. We're really good at cluttering up the holy places, our time, our schedules, for the things that really seem important to us. And what God wants to do is he wants to clear all of those calendars, he wants to clear all of those agendas and say, are you gonna make room even in here for the people that matter to me? I say it again, one of the biggest challenges that we have in the church is not allowing our holy place life to become about making us feel secure in a world and a country that is feeling increasingly insecure. Because a move of God will look very similar to this where he will come in and, and he will actually drive things out to make room. 
Matthew 24, 21 verse 14 tells us something else. Not only does Jesus make room, he's good here, not only does he make room for these outsiders to come in, Matthew 21, 14 says that amongst those coming in were the blind and the lame. And as I said last week, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome because he was understood, falsely understood, to have led a non-Jew, a Gentile, Timothy, okay, Jewish roots, a non-Jew into a part of the temple that they were not allowed to go. In the same way here, Jesus actually makes room for the blind and the lame and allows them to come into a part of the temple that they would not have been allowed to do so. And do you know what Matthew 21, 14 tells us he does? Heals every one of them. And then these religious leaders, they come to him and say, why do you do these things? These things? What things? Firstly, driving the money changes out of the temple. Why, why do you do that? When I was growing up, the way that this text was always interpreted for me was, God believes that it's really important for us not to have yard sales in church. Any of you heard that? That's the application that I heard. But that misses the point entirely. Why do you do these things? Clear the temple. Secondly, why do you do these things? Heal the blind and the lame. What gives you the right to actually change the regulations that actually drive the way that our religious institutions work? Who gives you the right to do this? His answer? Curses a fig tree. Shows the disciples that God has given him authority. He asked them a question. John's ministry, did it come from God or from man? <laughs> they don't know how to answer it. So Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. The next story is fascinating. In Luke, we have this story. And this is the second service here, so I can add this one in. I didn't give this one in the first one, so it's your privilege or your, your bad luck, either way you want to look at it. What happens next is really interesting. They bring to Jesus a coin. And it's a coin with... A, it's a Roman coin. It's got the image of the emperor on it. And they say, Jesus, is it... Is it right to actually pay taxes to Caesar? And you know what Jesus answers? Whose image is on the coin, right? And they say Caesar's. And then he says, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God that which belongs to God. Now, what's so good about this? He's just basically said, pay taxes to Rome. Why is this such a good answer? It says they marveled at his wisdom. Why is this such a good answer? I'll tell you why. Because there were no longer any money changes in the temple. He just kicked them out. <laughs> this is probably one of the only times where they would have attended worship and they didn't have to give. I know you long for that day. <laughs> they had no money to give because if you were a Jew, you couldn't give a, a coin with someone's image on it because that's idolatry. So the money changes are there because basically to worship in here and to present an offering, you would come in here, you'd actually change your, your Roman coin for a different kind of coin, and, and then you would come in here and you'd make your offering. They had nothing left to give. What do you give God when you've got nothing to give? You know what Jesus' answer is? God doesn't want your money. He wants you. God loves you. And all of these things that get in between you experiencing God's love for you, Jesus wants to get rid of. And it was in that moment that these people wanted Jesus dead. I want you to, to look at this statement here. Jesus died not because they did not understand him. That's what I was taught. Oh, if people have understood what he was trying to do, okay, they wouldn't have killed him. No, they would have. Jesus died not because they didn't understand him, but because they understood him only too well. Jesus offered a means of access to God that bypassed the temple and all of the holy place regulations and had its focus solely in him. Because of Jesus, lost, hurting, and broken people could come in. Because of Jesus, we can come in. Jesus died because God loves you. Jesus died because religious people are often more committed to the regulations in the holy places than they are to demonstrating God's love for you. Jesus died because he believed it's really important for God's people to clear out all of the clutter and actually live life in between in such a way that demonstrates to people 
who are lost, hurting, struggling with habits and issues, that God loves them and invites them to experience freedom, healing, and hope. Jesus believed this was a message that was worth dying for, and the religious community believes that this is a message worth killing people for. I can't tell you how many pastors have been driven off from churches because they've embraced the reality that what happens here on a Sunday is less important than how we live through the week. There may come a time when God may well take you from here, plant you in the Middle East. I thank God for that. You know, we've got about two or 300,000 expat people working in the 1040 window. We've only got two to 3,000 missionaries. So missions organizations say, let's get more missionaries sent. I say, let's train the two to 300,000 that we've got to live like Jesus through the week. That's the way to transform the world. It's for you and I to recognize Jesus died because he believed you are so important to God. He died and wanted you to find a place to belong to church, not simply for you to come in here on a Sunday for one hour a week or an hour and 15 minutes if you're lucky, but actually he wanted you to find a community with whom to do life with and actually understand his plans and his purposes for you. And the problem is, if we're not careful, that spirit of religiosity can always come in and can cause us to clutter up life in here and not make it about helping people experience Jesus in here. Jesus was seemingly okay, wasn't he, with a messy church. With a church where people didn't know when to stand and, and when to sit. With the people who didn't know the words and would sometimes just talk at the most inappropriate places or sleep during the sermon now and again. Jesus was comfortable with that. Because he recognized that the value of this gathering is actually being found in a group of people who recognized that we were once exiles. Who looked on a symbol called the cross. And in that moment, we got to experience the acceptance of God, the hope, the life that Jesus offers. And then in that moment, he took us up and he planted us into a family of faith called the church. And he said, folks, this is what I want you to do. When you come back in here to worship, don't complain that the regulations aren't being followed. Just thank God that you were once far off and that you've been brought in. And oh, when you come in, just make sure that you're putting your arm around someone else and say, you know what, come with me. Let me introduce you to someone who's changed my life. Friends, that's the type of church that we believe God is calling us to be. That's why we're making room in our ministry for something like Celebrate Recovery, because we're one of those people. We were paralyzed and in bondage to a power called sin, but Jesus set us free. And because Jesus has set us free, we increasingly experience victory over self-injury, over anger, lust, addiction, dependency, anorexia, and, and the list goes on. Sometimes God heals us in a moment, but more often than not, that healing takes place over time in the context of community. And where are God's people supposed to be? Right by the side saying, you know what? You're not on your own. Welcome home. Church, let's be that kind of church. Because that's the kind of church that Jesus believed was worth dying for. And if we believe that, then more important to us than simply an hour on a Sunday will be the lives we live in between. Live the in-between life in a way that gives glory to Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we have, who have experienced the hope and the life that Jesus brings us, just pause in this moment and say the only thing we can, let's thank you. We were once exiles, maybe not physically, literally, but certainly spiritually. We were far off from you, but because of the cross, we've experienced your acceptance, the hope and life that you bring through your son, Jesus. And we've been brought in 
Not because of anything we've done, but simply because we said thank you to you. Father, I pray that every time we come into the, into the church, I pray that that would be our dominant motivator. Thank you. Father, I pray that you would help us balance the life in here with the life out there. I pray, Father, that the example of Jesus, who is that perfect expression of bridging the gap between in here and out there, will increasingly become our experience. Father, the world outside we acknowledge is a scary place. And it's so easy for us to come in here and to privatize our faith. Help us to realize that there's no such thing as a private faith in a resurrected public Jesus. But Father, help us make room in our lives, in our calendars, in our schedules, in our families, for the people you've placed around us. And may we, Father, over the weeks and the months that follow, experience relationships developing with people who would never be in here because we, like Jesus, live fully out there. God, we love you, and we do thank you for what we've got here. But Father, we pray that you would just do a work in our hearts that would enable us, as a body of faith, to live out the vision of Jesus for the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. Some of you may well be used to taking notes. I'd really like to see your notes on this one. Um, the, the graphic, the video will be online. You'll be able to go to our website for that. Next week, Pastor Brad comes back and he just digs a little bit deeper into the life of Jesus and the approach of Jesus just to those that he called. And next week, he's going to just take us on a journey into the, the methodology Jesus used. And at the end, he's going to introduce us to the story of someone in our own faith community who was relentlessly pursued by Jesus from an incredibly hostile position to the church and has actually brought that person in. And now that person is being used to lead other people into the hope and life that Jesus offers. It's going to be a great week. You don't want to miss it. Remember everything, everything else, the other announcements today? But let's just stand as we commit to live the life in between in a way that gives God glory. Friends and family of Jesus Christ, children of God, you're being brought here because Jesus considered you important enough to lay down his life for you. Go from here and live a life worthy of that calling. And may your life in between be powerful and anointed in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.